Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for February 18th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. On this week's edition, we hear from U of A Extension Livestock Veterinarian Heidi Ward about caring for animals in the freezing weather. And we find out what the impact of this week's winter weather has been on a major bait fish hatchery in the state. We also learn about the nonprofit Seven Harvest Inc. and hear about the interesting life of one central Arkansas cattleman who just can't quite bring himself to retire from the job he loves. First up, Ken Moore has been following this week's winter storm and record cold that's hitting all sectors of agriculture. He spoke to James Anderson of IF Anderson Farms near Lone Oak, home of the nation's largest bait fish hatchery, about the effects of this week's weather on their operation. Welcome to AgCast on this uh, wintry Thursday. I'm Ken Moore, and hopefully the worst of our winter storm, our historic winter storm, is behind us. But as I am uh, enjoying and going to enjoy this conversation right now, the snow is still coming down. And I am visiting today with Jamie Anderson. Jamie is uh, and his family own Anderson Fish Farm, uh, the nation's largest bait fish operation in Lone Oak. Uh, the Andersons were our 2020 Farm Family of the Year. And Jamie, uh, man alive, I know uh, like me, you lived in Arkansas many years. Do you recall a winter storm quite like this one before? I really don't. I'm uh, 45 years old, and I can't quite recall one. Uh, my father and grandfather uh, told me around 1980, maybe 81, uh, they had something similar to this that kind of hung around, I think, for around three weeks. And, and uh, they just talked about all the projects they tried to come up with to stay busy and keep the employees busy and things you can do indoors. And, and uh, But that's uh, that's the last time I've heard of or seen it. And it's not just the snow uh, that has been significant. Two snowstorms within three days, easily, probably in many areas. By the time it's over with, over a foot of snow in many areas, and including here in central Arkansas, but it's bitter cold. It's the record-breaking cold that we've had. And yesterday, uh, many, many locations were below zero, and, and you you know, we've had that in northern Arkansas before on occasion, but not here in central Arkansas. How cold did it get there on the fish farm yesterday? Well, I had one reading at zero and one at uh, one degree, and, and uh, honestly, the temperatures are, are certainly uh, harder on us than the snow. The snow just kind of makes things a muddy mess and all and makes it a little slower to get around, but these temperatures, are they're really a killer on aquaculture facility. It's um, you know, not only are our ponds 100% frozen up right now, which inhibits the ability to um, harvest fish and feed fish and just, you know, look at fish, but, uh, you know, our, our shed and, and holding facility at our headquarters, you know, it's all open air. It's miles and miles of, of PVC and steel pipe and brass fittings and plastic fittings and and so we're we're just constantly circulating water the best we can, and, and you know we've never dealt with these low, not only these low temperatures, but this sustained low temperature. And and so we we've been lucky so far. Everything that's frozen up, we've been able to get thawed back out, uh, except the one we've been working on for seven hours now. Um, just a brass fitting or valve, an automatic valve that opens and closes during our backwash cycle at our filter plant froze up last night. And, 
So, you know, when that doesn't open, those pumps that are running are deadheading and you risk everything blowing apart right there at the heart of your operation. So, so it's just, uh, like I say, temperatures are certainly the our biggest nemesis right now. The snow's pretty and <laughs> and all, but uh, I just wish it would warm up. <laughs> well, the good news is that uh, it will warm back up, and hopefully within just a couple of two or three days, we'll be climbing back up to uh, normal, I believe, by the first of next week. We'll be back into the 50s, but uh, that can't come soon enough, I know, for you. Uh, we just no, got to get not, there. Yes, uh, sunshine and a little warmer temperatures make all the difference. Well, again, just explain for the benefit of our listeners here uh, what you just kind of touched on it briefly, but uh, exactly what are you having to do to save your fish? I mean, is this going to, can the fish survive under that coat of ice on the ponds? And and exactly uh, what are you doing to protect them? They can survive, um, you know, under just plain sheet of ice, you know, where at least the sunlight can still penetrate and you can have some natural oxygen production. Uh, they can survive just fine. As cold as they are, they're just kind of comatose. Their metabolism is so slow that that uh, they're just kind of hanging out. But once you get a layer of snow over the top of this ice and the light cannot penetrate, you know, at that point you start to worry a little. But we're, you know, probably, I guess, five days into it right now, so I'm not panicked yet. But if this was going to hang out another week, I would certainly start to panic. But But as cold as it is, you know, they're good under that ice for a while. Um, you know, so so really, there's not much we can do there. We uh, years ago we used to try to harvest fish through the ice by cutting it with chainsaws and moving sheets of ice and getting the seine in there. And it's it, it's just a different world now. It's just it's dangerous. It's not worth putting your employees through that. It's not worth putting your equipment through that, and much less the fish. You know, so we get to a point like this where we just we cannot sell fish, obviously, because we cannot harvest fish. And, and even if we could harvest fish and get them to the shed and grade them out and load them on trucks, that truck can't leave the parking lot. <laughs> so, you know, it's, they're not going to get far. Uh, my I-40 is blocked right now next to Lone Oak. Uh, interstate traffic's come down Highway 70. So, you know, like I say, if we could do one, we couldn't do the other. So, really, we're just maintaining. We're trying to keep everything operational. The shit, the fish that we do have under our shed, trying to just keep them maintained and keep water flow and oxygen to them and and just try not to have any major catastrophes so that when this does thaw out here in the next few days, we can resume normal operation. And that's, that's our biggest thing. And then uh, the biggest worry we've got moving forward as it starts to thaw, you know, you think of these massive sheets of ice on these ponds now and and as they start to thaw and thaw around the edge first, that ice starts to shift. You get a you know you get a strong wind or anything like that through here, and all these pipes that we have sticking up through this ice, whether it be a drain pipe or a crossover pipe going to another pond or anything like that, even our aerators, they're all attached to that ice. And if that sheet starts to move, you start ripping stuff apart, tearing stuff apart, and and worst case, you know, breaking a pipe that drains your pond, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. So, so that's our biggest worry moving forward. We, you know, with sunshine. Um, and hopefully no wind or little wind, maybe that, that ice will thaw quickly and, and uh, we don't have to worry about it. But that does happen. We've had it happen many, many times in the past. Wow. Wow. Uh, how busy? I know, you know, you ship year-round, but uh, in February 
is this kind of a slow time of year, or is this just as busy a time as you would have in, in the summertime? And what are you telling your customers? I mean, obviously, this winter storm is affecting millions of people in many states. Right, and, you know, we operate in over 40 states, um, you know, so there's always somewhere that's wanting to fish and wanting bait and needing bait. So, so you know, we're we're talking to customers in Florida. I've answered the phone to some Florida customers, and they need bait, and they've got and you try to make them understand what issues we're dealing with and then at the same time I'm dealing with customers that are wanting to ice fish with bait so you know and then then they they live with this for six months out of the year and, and but I got to wow. explain to them that in the south hey, we we're just not set up to operate under these conditions and we don't have the infrastructure to clear roads and and also it, it just is what it is and a lot of them are understanding but uh, you know at the same time their business relies on our business operating efficiently, and when we can't get them product to sell, they start to suffer themselves. And so we got to look at it both ways and try to be as delicate as we can. And you know, February is always the time of year where, as it starts to warm up in the south, people start to crappie fish again. Crappie spawns coming quickly in the south in normal years, uh, so business is really starting to ramp up in mid to late February and. And then you still got a little ice fishing going up on up north, but you know it, that all depends on the snow covering the ice as to how, what demand you have there. So, so you know February February can be a great month, but this one's obviously it started out really good and it's it's a dead in the water so to speak. But you know we ship a lot of our product um, over the road, eighteen wheelers, live haul trucks, but then also FedEx is a big portion of our business. So. You know, they pick up at our facility, it's in boxes, they go to Memphis, hit planes, planes go all over the country. And right now, they're just telling us, just hold off, it's not going to happen. So, so like I say, that's just another link in the chain, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the supply and demand, it, it really doesn't matter. It, it just can't happen without that, that link, whether it be our trucks or their truck or or whatnot. So, but February is usually ramping up. Where you, you know, we've got uh, currently 42 employees, and that I'm paying, even though we can't do much, and and you know, so it hurts. You're going to have a week to 10 days of no sales here, and you know, so that hurts your bottom line. But it just, it is what it is. Uh, you know, you hope to get it back, but generally in the bait business, and you know, once you lose a sale, it doesn't come back down the line. Uh, so, wow. that, yeah, but that's just part of it. It, uh, you know, these you're dealing with a live product, a perishable product, and a and a recreational industry. And you miss a you miss one good pretty weekend somewhere, and you don't get it back, but you do feel it later. Well, I'm sorry, you know, that uh, you're having to deal with this. Uh, agriculture is always dependent on the weather. You know, it doesn't matter what segment of agriculture you're in, and. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, you're just having to everybody, all the cattle ranchers. We uh, we have heard from them. They're out in bitter cold, trying to make sure their their livestock are fed and and cared for. And now you're trying to service your customers and and just right. praying and waiting for that thaw to come in and uh, so you can get back to work. Uh, so, you know, this is a, a week for the record books. I think. I mean, we've had winter weather before in Arkansas, of course, but. Uh, right. It's the first one we've had in like three years like this, so I guess it was inevitable, huh? I've said many times the last few days, you know, when you deal with Mother Nature, you're ready to lose because she's going to win every time. 
uh, you can try to make things a little better, but but uh, she's going to do what she's going to do, and you just got to grin and bear it and, and go along. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there people ask me, well, can't you enclose your facilities? Well, yeah, I could, and I could have a lot of fish under that facility, but I can't get them down the road, so what's the point? <laughs> so, you know, it's just that's just one link. Uh, so, yeah, but Mother Nature, she can be wonderful, and she can be uh, hard-headed, but, but it is what it is. Well, we appreciate uh, your family and, and what you do, uh, the attention that Anderson Farms brings to uh, Arkansas and the bait fish world, and uh, hopefully uh, we will get beyond this next week, and then uh, you'll have a good spring season, hopefully. I hope so, and hopefully everybody goes back to fishing. I think we had a whole lot of new uh, recreational fishermen from last year with the pandemic and, and all that going on, so I just want to encourage everybody to get back out there. If you took a kid fishing for the first time last year, take them again this year and and uh, use those rods and reels that everybody bought because I, I know you bought them because there wasn't one on the shelves. So everybody get back out there and take a kid fishing. You betcha. You betcha. Uh, thank you so much, and we hope that they will do that. That's a recreational activity that anybody can do and not worry about this pandemic as it continues. Well, Jamie, thank you for taking a few minutes to visit with us and explain for our listeners exactly what's happening there on your farm. And we wish you all the best of luck, and hopefully uh, when that ice thaws, no pipes break, okay? <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time, and, and y'all stay safe. We will. been speaking with Jamie Anderson of Anderson Fish Farm in Lone Oak on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Next up, Greg Patterson talks to Dr. Heidi Ward, Extension Livestock Veterinarian for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Ward discusses the challenges of cold weather for Arkansas livestock growers and offers tips for animal care during freezing weather. This is Greg Patterson, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, our special guest is Dr. Heidi Ward, and she is with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture and is an Extension Livestock Veterinarian. Nice to have you on board, Heidi. Nice to be here. Nice to have some sunshine today, even though it's just brief. Yeah, sunny and extremely cold, but at least it's not snowing. It's supposed to storm again over the next few days. And for the first time in a long time, Arkansas has a really extended cold snap. Tell us what that does to livestock out there. Well, it couldn't come at a worse time. We have a lot of cattle that are being born. There's a lot of calving. I'm even seeing some posts of some, some kidding and some lambing. And in every case, it's the same. And that is that we need to make sure that those newborns are warm. And that's gonna take a little extra effort on the part of the producer. Um, and of course, the most important part is checking on your pregnant animals often during these cold days so you can catch that birthing event when it happens so you can ensure that that newborn is safe. And the conversations I'm having with farmers around the state, uh, if we, we looked at temperatures um, in Fayetteville this morning were negative 15 um throughout the state just brutal cold and they said one of the hardest things is trying to find these mama cows and being there when these calves are born because there's a limited amount of time to get to whether it's a, a calf or a lamb or or whatever to be able to 
you know, have it survive. And uh, getting some pictures of folks with calves in their pickup trucks, <laughs> warming them yes, up. I've seen a lot of those too. <laughs> so um, if you were to, to give some advice to folks out there who are in the midst of all this right now, um, what would that be as far as some of the things they could do to help livestock? Well, of course, hindsight is 2020 always, right? Um, ideally, when you know that your animal is close to giving birth, um, to have them as a in a designated spot so you can check them easier. And that's the number one uh, piece of advice I would give is to, is to bring them into an area that is closer for observing. Doesn't necessarily have to be in a barn, but ideally it would be a barn for lambing and kidding, but our cattle, we know we have a lot of cattle out there. Um, and in lieu of that, it's going to be physically getting out there and scanning the area, whether that's on horseback or four-wheeler or on foot, how you're going to do that. Um, so that's gonna be the number one thing is really step up the observation. Um, the second thing they can do to prepare um, in case of emergency is to have that backup colostrum in storage. And that doesn't matter which species it is. They can get, you know, just the, the commercial powdered form um, or they can take the time to milk um, a, a pregnant animal, lactating animal beforehand and freeze it. And the reason I'm saying this is because that newborn animal has to have that colostrum in order to survive. Normally they're slightly hypothermic when they come out of mama's warm bodies anyway. And that first colostrum, although we think of it as being important for antibodies, we forget that it's also chock full of calories and minerals to give them that uh, energy in order to shiver and to warm their internal body temperature. So now it's an extra um, incentive to get that colostrum into those newborns. And a lot of people, because it's so cold and the, and the cows are even a bit distracted, uh, while we're seeing a lot of those animals being taken into the cars and the trucks, um, and some people are taking them to designated areas um, like a barn or in, even in their house, I've seen that. Yes. You know, little pens and makeshift uh, um, area to, to bottle feed. Um, but even if it's just to get them in a warmed cabin of the truck, um, make sure they get that first dose colostrum, and then it may be to where they can bring them back to mom, to where they can snuggle and take care of them there. But um, I mean, that's the number, that's the two most important things is to get the newborns warm and to get that colostrum in them as soon as possible. And then they, they have a better chance of, of making it through this cold snap. And then finally, um, livestock in general, you know, that are out there for getting additional feed and maybe putting out, you know, hay that they can, you know, bed on when they're outside, uh, chopping through ice to get to water, some of the things that, that also need to happen, what would they be? Well, well, all of the above that you just talked about, um, checking the water sources, uh, that would be going out and, and breaking up the water multiple times a day. Uh, they, the animals will be in trouble from dehydration much faster than they will be from, from feed intake, decreased feed intake, especially since if, you, if you've noticed your, your hygrometers or measuring your humidity, it's really dry right now. 
it is bone dry. And because of that, you know, that's gonna get, get them dehydrated even faster. So making sure they have that water source. And again, having that extra feed, give them that boost of energy to help maintain their inner body temperature because that takes extra energy. Um, otherwise they could become hypothermic really fast. And another thing to consider after this cold front is moved on um, is that if they're all snuggling up next to each other, they're at higher risk of lice and mites spreading through the herd. So if you do see um, patches forming on the cattle in the next couple of weeks um, or see them extra itchy, then it's time to get out that, uh, that insecticide, your ivermectins and your lice control and make sure that the cattle are taken care of in that aspect. Um, this is when we always see that is when they get all bundled up to, to each other and, and lice are allowed to jump from animal to animal. And some animals, it doesn't bother them at all. And some, it'll just really eat them up, especially the calves. So you wanna make sure you got that under control. Well, she's Dr. Heidi Ward, and thank you so much for spending time with us and letting us know more about how to take care of livestock in these bitterly cold situations. And uh, everybody out there, stay warm for sure. Thank you, Dr. Ward. My pleasure. Next, Keith Sutton talks to Dr. Barry Colley, CEO of Seven Harvest, Inc. in Forest City, who shares the story of this unique nonprofit and discusses the Veterans Agriculture Support Fund project. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. This week, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Barry Colley, who is the CEO of Seven Harvest Incorporated. Welcome to our AgCast show, Dr. Colley. Well, thank you, Keith. It's a, it's a, pleasure, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. We're very glad to have you here. Uh, uh, a lot of people... Uh, uh, probably don't know you, so let's start by just uh, letting you tell folks some things about yourself. And I'm going to tell you one reason I, I especially want to do this. I remember not long ago when you and I met, you handed me a business card. And if I remember right, it said on there, you are an agripreneur. Is that right? Um. Yes, um, I was blessed with a pretty fertile mind, um, and I see, and I think I have been blessed to see things, uh, see opportunities where people may not see opportunities. But first, I want to tell you about my uh, a little bit about my background. I grew up in New York City in South Jamaica, Queens, uh, and um, I stumbled into agriculture via spending uh, summers with the Amish family in Pennsylvania. Oh. My dad, yeah, my dad sent me on a, a program that still, is still going on years and years hence since I participated, uh, the Fresh Air Fund, which is a program to send uh, New York City kids to rural communities to get away from the rat race of New York uh, just to get some exposure to nature and sort of the beauty of, of rural living. And um, I, I uh, spent six 
consecutive summers from the time I was eight to the time I was 14 on this Amish farm uh, with an Amish boy about my age. We were very, very close. We wrote letters during the winter, and then I would return in the summer. And um, and so I had this great appreciation for agriculture, even though I grew up in New York City. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting start to an agriculture career. <laughs> yes, sir. And, and um, years later... Uh, I got interested in finding my roots in Africa. This was back in 1977. Uh, I, I had the chance to, re, to, to lead a crossroads, Africa crossroads group in a, a project in Ghana, West Africa, where we were building a, a primary school block with along with the villagers, the farmers, and the masons in the village. And the whole idea was to, to get a cross-cultural understanding about Africa. And we were a mixed group of Americans, black and white, and we learned a lot about each other's culture when we were learning about African culture. And um, and so that was very powerful. And But I discovered that... Um, there was food scarcity in the village that we we lived in. Um, and I decided uh, at that time I was a young, I just got my first degree in political science, and I got so interested in the plight of this African village that I, I, I enrolled in Michigan State University in the fall of 1981. And I I studied agriculture and uh, got yeah. got my, got a PhD at that time I had a master's so I got a PhD in agriculture and extension education from uh, Michigan State University. Wow, <laughs> what a what a interesting story! And and then where did you go next? <laughs> well, the next stop was. Uh, Ethiopia, wow. and I got recruited by a, an international agency just as I was finishing my Ph.D. studies, and um, they wanted me to help uh, help Ethiopians recover from famine. The, 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 the famine was subsiding, but they had to rehabilitate they had to get farmers back on the land. They had to, uh, because, you know, in a famine, uh, the the rural people dispersed from their communities in search of food, in search of help. Right. Um, and so everybody had to come back. We had a big program of seeds, oxen, and tool distribution to help the farmers get back on the land. And and we also had a big gravity-fed irrigation project. Uh, so we had two tracks of work, relief work and development work. Um, and the irrigation project was to give, uh, was to provide uh, the Ethiopians with, uh, uh, with uh, irrigated water so that they wouldn't be so dependent on um, rain-fed agriculture, which, which 
which was very problematic and risky. Um, Did you accomplish your goals there that you had hoped? Well, actually, um, I would say it was a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Ah. Uh, I really learned a lot about development work, what development work is and what it isn't. Right. Uh, trying to get in tune and in step with the people, but also trying to bring them uh, a new perspective on how uh, agriculture might be designed for their benefit. And that was very challenging. Um, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of irritation, but there were some good, some good things that happened. But basically, the irrigation project was uh, overwhelmed over uh, by the fighting. There was a lot of uh, uh, civil war in Ethiopia at the time, and. Right. Actually, the 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 fighting uh, uh, overwhelmed the project. It, it actually there were there was fighting right at the project site. I wasn't there, um, but but a lot of the irrigation work was destroyed. So uh, it was a lesson learned about development that still uh, still uh, haunts me today. Sure. I'm certain it does. That that had to be difficult uh, uh, facing that situation. Yes, sir. You know, and 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 even here in Arkansas today, we we know that people must participate in their own. They must have ownership in their own interests in development. It can't be done by people uh, pouring money in from the outside. Uh, the people must own it, uh, and they must learn from it, and they must uh, use the experience to make themselves more resilient. And oftentimes when we we just give people money, it just makes them more dependent, and it doesn't meet the goals of the intended work. Right. So I would think, bearing that in mind, uh, that philosophy, I guess you would say, uh, kind of led to Seven Harvest. Am, am I correct? Well, yeah, Seven Harvest, uh, after I had worked for eight years for Heifer International, the, the development agency in Little Rock, um, uh, in which I had the opportunity to serve as the African Area Program Director, uh, I decided that I would come back to Eastern Arkansas and um, start start my own nonprofit. I, my focus was on youth and agriculture. Right. I felt that the young people might be uh, have the fertile minds and the interest to do new types of farming, uh, not the traditional uh, farming. Uh, that many of our many of our uh, elders ran away from, uh, right. who went, who, you know, the great migration of the uh, 30s and 40s when a lot of African Americans left the farmlands and went to the cities for for industrial jobs, right? And um, because there was no 
uh, economies of scale in agriculture for African Americans. So um, my thought was to revive uh, small farm cooperatives and to make the young people the center of that. And so we started uh, uh, Seven Harvests uh, as uh, with the mission of developing food and farm enterprises in underserved communities. Um, and we had a big idea. We didn't, we, we wanted to work in Arkansas as well as Mississippi and in Tennessee in, in the, uh, what we call the Mississippi Delta area. Those right. three states are touched by the Mississippi Delta. And, and we want to continue to, to cross into tri-state development area of serving uh, youth and uh, farm cooperatives. So that's what we did. We had a couple of USDA grants to help us with our work. We obtained our 501c3 um, nonprofit status. And um, we, we uh, continued to uh, do a little bit of international work along with the local work and um and i went back to michigan state in 2016 to a conference for farmer veterans and when i was there i got very much interested in helping as kind of i'm fast forwarding but i i wanted to help the, the veteran farmers uh especially the black and brown veteran farmers who were who were kind of be, being passed over to have an opportunity to define their way in farming as farming uh had been a very has been a very therapeutic uh outlet for many military veterans yes definitely and, and but the problem is that the military some of the mili the black and brown military veterans Veterans didn't have land, didn't have access to capital. It kind of was like the ma mainstream uh, agriculture problem that I had experienced uh, prior to being exposed to the Veteran Farmer Coalition. And um, so I was going about my work, and I ran into someone um, who visited my farm from Massachusetts. And uh, six years later, they called me up and said, if you had a couple of hundred thousand dollars, what would you do with it? <clears throat> and I said, I would invest it in the human capital development of uh, military veterans to, to be farmers. And so that's what brought us to our Veterans Agriculture Support Fund, which is a fund that provides uh, a $5,000 award, and with this award, uh, a farmer veteran need in need has an opportunity to to, to get a farm training, to 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 buy equipment and supplies for their farm operation, or to secure land uh, to operate a farm or to rent farmland. And um, so we have uh, developed a program of mentoring. You know, in this time of COVID-19, uh, 
we're we're going to be doing some virtual training, right? Uh, mentoring. Uh, we're going to give the veterans an opportunity to learn about how to look at uh, going into a farm enterprise. Uh, we're going to help them uh, understand how to access information from the internet um, and other sources, how to set up partnerships with other farm groups. And we hope that some of the veteran farmers would, would, would want to strike out and start their own farm cooperatives. So that's, that's what we're into right now. Well, I know uh, you actually, if, if I remember right from our conversation, the Veterans Agriculture Su- Support Fund project that's really brand new. I mean, it just started last year. Is that correct? Yes, I'm happy to inform you. We started in um, 2020, in January of 2020. So we're just a little bit over one year. And during the course of the year, we recruited uh, four uh, worthy uh, farmer veterans to to receive awards of five thousand uh, dollars, which will be given out, which <clears throat> which we will give out uh, as soon as we can get to the bank and uh, transfer the money to them. So that's coming up very soon, and uh, I know uh, that's big news uh, to share. That's one of the reasons we wanted to uh, visit with you today is to to hear uh, this great story you just shared, but more particularly to talk about the work Seven Harvest has done uh, to help these minority farmers in in the Delta. Uh, And I know two of those farmers uh, who will get the awards are here in Arkansas, and the others are in some of the other states, right? Well, we have, this year we have two in, one in Marville, Arkansas, and the other is in Crawfordsville, Arkansas. And then we have a couple of farmers in uh, Mississippi. Um, I hesitate to say their names because we haven't had approval to use their names in any of our publications or public discussions. But but they, I'll just just describe it. they are producing vegetables, <clears throat> and they have, you know, real small farms. You know, I would say that their farms are maybe three to four acres. Right. And um, they have had very little support uh, other than their own resources. So uh, we have one farmer who learned how to to uh, produce uh, brawlers, brawler chickens, just from watching YouTube. Wow, <laughs> that's interesting. And, and so just imagine, if you will, what we could help him with when he shows that much initiative, how we could probably add value to, to what he's already doing from a self-educational point of view. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> So we we have high expectations. We we're going to have our first uh, our first uh, orientation meeting 
on uh, Wednesday, this Wednesday, using the Zoom uh, meeting uh, platform. And we, we hope to get an understanding of what their interests is, what their interests are. Uh, we, we'll explore more with them, and we will try to help them see each other as a um, cooperating group of farmers, um, not just individuals getting an award, but actually right. building some sort of camaraderie with them and areas of interest to exchange and help each other. And we, we one of the things that we hope is that they will want to uh, do some cooperative farming. I say cooperative, meaning not a cooperative, but, you know, just start off with helping each other and then trying to see where they can build uh, capacity to work uh, more effectively with each other. Well, I want to mention again, these farmers are all veteran veterans uh, of the military. And uh, this is a, a big deal to uh, a lot of veterans who have a desire to use agriculture after they leave the service as their means of making a living. And uh, so all of us uh, have uh, fond feelings for our veterans and want to help them. So if somebody wants to reach out to you at Seven Harvest uh, to see what they could do to be a part of this uh, great program, how would they go about doing that, Dr. Colley? Well, they they could um, consult. They can call. Uh, they can call uh, our number, um, which is my number actually five zero one four five four twenty two fifty two. They can send us a, a email message at seven dot harvest inc at gmail.com or they can visit our website at the number seven harvest.org and I just looked at that website earlier today it's uh, got a lot of information it's it's hard for us in a short interview like this to talk about everything uh, that you're doing in such a great organization. So I encourage everybody uh, to visit that website. Again, it's the numeral 7harvest.org, and uh, they can find a lot more information there, and including ways uh, they can contribute and try to assist in your great work. Can I just make one more comment, Keith? Absolutely, um, please. One of the things that we're going to try to do uh, we know our farmers are, tend to be vegetable farmers, um, and that's good. Um, we also want to try to introduce them to uh, things they might not be so familiar with but could add income to their operation. And I'll just go on record as saying there is uh, an explosive – specialty crop uh, called Moringa, M-O-R-I-N-G-A, 
which is a woody plant that is relatively easy to cultivate. Um, it is grown all over the world, um, and it can be grown in Arkansas as well. It it will overwinter. It will grow. Uh, it's like a small tree. It will grow out uh, leaves in the summer months, and then overwinter here in Arkansas in uh, the winter. It can be grown outdoors, or it can be grown in hoop houses or um, greenhouses. It's very easy to grow, and um, we think with very minimal input or investment, you can supplement your income on farm by growing moringa. Moringa can be, you know, the leaves can be crushed and used as a powder as a, a, a supplement for your nutrition. Um, it can be used as teas. And then it has like uh, keys. It has at least 20 different uh, value chains. So it can be used as a pharmaceutical. When you, when you want to add to the value of it, you can start off with just growing the seeds and making the powder but then you can um, uh, scale up into some of the uh, things that require more processing. Wow. So, for example, you can make muffins. You can make Moringa muffins, which are very nutritional. Um, Moringa has a lot of dense nutrition in it, so sometimes it's called a superfood. Oh, yes. But 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 those are some of the things we want to introduce the veterans to some of the specialty crops that will grow well in Arkansas with good markets and good income streams. So uh, that that kind of rounds out what we think about these veterans, not only helping them with mentoring and um, improved techniques for cultivating. Uh, vegetables, but also introducing them to new opportunities to make a living on the farm. Well, we want everybody to remember they heard it here first. When they see uh, Moringa growing in Arkansas, uh, they can think back and remember Dr. Barry Colley shared that with us first because that's one, and and I'm immersed in the ag world uh, trying to do these stories all the time. And I'm unfamiliar with that, so I'm fixing to do my own research and learn a little more. We appreciate you, Dr. Colley, taking time with us today to share information about what your group is doing and uh, how maybe folks can uh, benefit from that. And we wish you good luck with all that and hope that we'll be able to uh, tell this story again and again as, as things progress for you. Well, thank you, Keith, and I really appreciate spending time this morning with you. And, um, yeah, we're open to meeting and learning from veterans and serving veterans. So please uh, hope a lot of your viewers will listen and and, uh, call us. Give us a call.
Well, we they will find all that information in this podcast, and they can go to Seven Harvest, the numeral Seven Harvest dot and find uh, all those ways to contact you there as well. And we appreciate your time very much today, Dr. Colley. Thanks for visiting with us. Thank you, Keith. You have a great day. You too, sir. Finally, Ken Moore visited Fred Nickerson of Pulaski County to talk about his many years in agriculture, his service in the military and with Union Pacific Railroad, and how his love for raising cattle makes him reluctant to call it a career. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Ken Moore, and today I'm south of Little Rock down in the community of Sweet Home on the farm of Fred Nickerson. Uh, Fred's a cattleman, a cow-calf operator down here south of Little Rock on his farm, and uh, I'm going to let Fred just kind of share his story with us today on AgCast. And Fred, thank you for joining us today and and, uh, letting our listeners know uh, your story and a little bit about your history down here. People that, you know, think of Little Rock, they think it's the capital city, it's a big urban city, uh, Pulaski County is an urban area, but you don't have to drive too far. You actually live in North Little Rock, don't you? But you farm down here and you have a wonderful cattle operation just a few minutes away. Yes, I live in North Little Rock, and I commute every day to the farm here in Sweet Home. And talk about uh, how you got started. How long have you been doing this? You've got a great story to tell. I understand you actually saved up some money uh, and bought your first heifer when you were 16 years old. I saved $85 uh, from grass cutting and bought uh, my first, uh, what, at that time, we referred to it as a Brancus heifer. Really not sure of the uh, uh, parentage of this particular heifer, but she had that Brancus look about her, and we just called her a Brancus. And she was my first purchase. And I kept her for 13 years and uh, had a lot of good cash from her. And uh, she developed a cancer, and I didn't have the heart to sell her, so we just put her down, and she's buried here on the farm. My, my, I know that was a sad day when you had to do that, but, you know, uh, those heifers are good when they can turn out a lot of good calves for you. And 16 years old, you got started, uh, and how much did she cost you? $85. That was cheap in today's time, money. At that time, that was, well, <laughs> it was quite a bit to me, yeah. $85 for a 16-year-old cutting grass, yes. Sure, uh-huh. sure. What would that same heifer cost you today? That same heifer today, looking back on her size, $1,000 minimum for a good quality heifer. Wow. Go to the sale barn, $1,000 for a good quality heifer like that. Bring us heifer. Well, well, Fred, you uh, you bought her, but then uh, graduated high school in, I understand, uh, the mid-60s, I think. And, uh, and then you went uh, shortly thereafter into the military. Talk about that. I graduated in 1964 from uh, Scipio A. Jones High School, North Little Rock, and uh, I joined the U.S. Air Force in 1965, and from there, after basic, I was stationed in Japan. From there, I had a tour of duty in Vietnam. Uh, After that, I uh, came back to the United States and served the rest of my uh, Enlistment there before I was discharged uh, from Dice Air Force Base, Texas. Wow, you had quite a tour of duty there, Vietnam, Japan. Uh, thank you very much for your service back during that time. 
appreciate all of our veterans. And there's a fraternity, if you will, now that we're helping develop of military veterans who are going into agriculture. I don't know if you're involved in that or familiar with it, but they call it the Farmer Veteran Coalition. And it's just a way you can encourage each other, those who are transitioning to civilian life and to doing what you're doing now. I've heard about the program. I don't know of any vets that's uh, enrolled in it. Uh, I think it's an excellent program for those that want to uh, have a career in agriculture. Uh, it's, it's a noble career. I, I, I think anybody that uh, feel they need them, uh, the need to 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 get into agriculture, this would be an ideal uh, you know situation to get involved in. What uh, skills do you learn in the military that apply themselves to uh, whether it's row crop, agriculture, uh, some are growing fruits and vegetables, and some are raising cattle like you are? Oh, boy, skills, patience, mechanical skills, uh, oh, gosh, skills. My military career was the starting point for life for me for for everything that I do now I I look back and the discipline that that I uh learned in military life uh uh transferred right over into civilian life when I when I got out uh, uh work ethic uh just just being there and 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 having uh a structure uh, was very important to me. I'm 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 a structure guy, and, and I I really enjoyed my military career. And I look back, and uh, a lot of what I am today, uh, I give credit to the military for that. That's fantastic, and I know you do it because it, you develop that work ethic, you develop that discipline, and uh, perseverance. Farmers have to be able to persevere through the tough times. Persevere and resilience. You know, it's, it's you, you have to bounce back. Uh, from from the droughts, uh, from too much water uh, to no water, uh, uh, bad uh, situation with cattle. It's just something that that if you're gonna get in it, uh, expect to be in for the long haul because there's gonna be some ups and downs. And uh, but the, the the enjoyment I get from it outweigh the disappointments, if there are any disappointments. Uh, you know, there's really no comparison for me. Then you transitioned and you, you had a career, a lengthy career, with the Union Pacific Railroad. Talk about that. Well, I started at Missouri Pacific Railroad and uh, transitioned into uh, Union Pacific. Union Pacific bought Missouri Pacific. And I was locomotive engineer for 34 years on Missouri Pacific, Union Pacific. And uh, it was a career that I enjoyed, uh, right along with my agriculture uh, uh cow calf operation I, I was doing both at that particular time so it's something that uh that we just continued on you know to this day what was it about working for the railroad that was especially gratifying for you uh, we'd still depend on freight and rail to transfer transport uh grain and other cargo that had to be a gratifying career for you 34 years well railroading was an enjoyable career i i, I enjoyed it uh, like agriculture, my particular job was outside. Uh, I was uh, on the road, on a freight train. Uh, my runs were into Missouri, Texas, and Tennessee. And every day 
was a different day. You might say you could go the same route every day, but each trip, you know, took on a different perspective than the trip before. So uh, my dad, he was a railroader. He worked 42 years, same company. So I followed in his footsteps as far as the uh, railroading side of my uh, uh, journey and agriculture career was from my mother's side of the family. Her brothers were farmers. And uh, I guess I really took to to following them at a young age, uh, my uncles, and that's how I developed my love for uh, livestock and agriculture. He was a... Uh, row crop farmer that raised cattle. You might say on the side because his row cropping consists of about 2,000 acres uh, of ground that he uh, rented and owned a portion of it. But uh, the, agric- the, the livestock portion was the part I really, really took a, uh, a firm liking to. Now were your mother and uncles, were they from Pulaski County? Were they from this part of the state too? Or where, where were they raised? My dad, he was born in uh, Somerville, Texas, and he moved to Arkansas uh, at an early age, I guess. I'm really not sure when he moved to Arkansas, but he moved here and he uh, started working for Missouri Pacific. My mom and her family, they were uh, originally from North Little Rock, and uh, my uncle's farm was up around Cato, Arkansas, and he farmed. His row cropping operation was uh, Lone Oak County and uh, surrounding areas there. Well, got several generations right here close in, in Pulaski, Lone Oak County. And that's what's so impressive to me about our agriculture history is that they're multi-generational operations. Many of them are. They go back three and four generations. Uh, many are century farms, as you know. And, and it's like, you know, you pass it down from one generation to the next do you anticipate doing that with your operation to uh, your your children at all? It's my hope that this farm stays in the family. I've been <laughs> I've been assured that it would, but it's my hope that it, it remains in the family. My son, uh, he's he's uh, primed to take over, and I've got his assurance that uh, it'll be here for the grandkids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he helps you with the cattle, I guess, uh, some and uh, and. Because there's going to come a time when you just can't do it by yourself. He's here whenever he can. He has a landscape business that keeps him pretty much uh, on the go all the time. But uh, if there's a need, I can call on him and he'll be here. Yeah, That's awesome. That's awesome, Fred. Again, talk about the passion that you have for this way of life. There's something special about uh, it's not easy work. You've broken ice before during the wintertime to uh, get water for your cattle, Uh You've got to, you know, pull cabs when it might be 20 degrees, but you do it because you love it. I do it because I love it. You hope you don't encounter, you know, problems like that. But if, if you are in the business long enough, there's going to be situations that requires, you know, all hands on deck. And uh, I have, you know, had the misfortune of, of losing uh, animals because of uh, uh you know, I, I didn't get here in time or or for, for whatever reasons, you know. So there's going to be setbacks. But the, the, the enjoyment that I get from the good times, even the bad times, uh, you know, is something that, that, that I'm going to continue to do. Uh, I don't I don't look at the bad and say, you know, it's time to throw the towel in. Uh, 
and then look at the good times and say, you know, this is great. You know, it, it balances itself out, it seemed like to me. What's the joy of seeing a brand-new calf out there nursing on that mama heifer? Uh, you know, that you had a mama here that's been with you how many years now, and she was just crying because she's kind of been separated from her baby just for the few minutes. Well, she's 18 years old. She'll be 19 this spring. And looking back in my records, I think she's had 17 calves. So she's been a real good producer. And, uh, you know, it's going to come a time that, I, well, this may be her last year. I don't know. She's she's paid her dues, you might say. So we may just put her in the back pasture and let her not, you know, calve anymore. Don't know. Yeah. But uh, there's joy in that, right? And uh, and seeing those new babies born and uh, running around out here. You said yesterday these cows, you knew the weather was changing because they were just dancing and jumping all over the place. Well, they were having a good time yesterday. And I've always been told that uh, if you want to know what the forecast is going to be, the weather changes, watch the cattle. And uh, yesterday, was, if yesterday was an indication as to uh, what's to come, uh, batting down the hatches. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait and see just how cold it's going to get over the next several days. Well, Fred, let's just uh, wrap up our conversation here. Uh, you said something to me earlier. You started at 16, uh, but in your words, talk about your role over years. You, you're, you know, not a young man anymore, but uh, you're not ready to throw in the towel yet. You, you still love this. Talk about that rollover policy you got. Well, Ken, I, I, I said that rollover is something that, uh, I like to know that uh, there's still uh, sand left in the hourglass. Uh, every year, I say that, you know, I pay my dues and this is it. Springtime comes, new calves come, and thus an enjoyable time to me. And uh, to see those young calves uh, from a year's uh, work that I put in, and and you know, it's 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 it's, it's real hardening. You know, it's really really something that I enjoy. So I say I'll give it one more year. Next year's calves come, the same thing happened. I rolled it over, give it one more year. So I've been rolling this year over for oh several years now, and I'll continue to roll it over until uh, higher power says the. Uh, you can't roll it over anymore. <laughs> so it's 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 something that I enjoy to see the calves. I just love working with livestock, and it's I can't put it into words. It's just something that a person has to experience to really understand the joy that I get or they can get from you know what I do. It's just it's just something that I don't have the uh, the vocabulary, I guess, to express, yeah. you know, just how it is for me. It's a way of life. It, it is a way of life, and you've done it for many years. You're here in just a couple of months. You're going to celebrate your 75th birthday, and uh, that's quite a, a legacy, Fred. And we appreciate you. Fred Nickerson is a former president of the uh, Pulaski County Farm Bureau. He's been very active in Arkansas Farm Bureau and uh, representing his industry with our organization and we appreciate your military service we appreciate your voluntary service 
for Farm Bureau. It's all it's been a gratifying career, hasn't it? Well, Ken, it has been. It has been, and uh, I hope you know we can continue to to provide food and fiber for uh, the world. Uh, we're gonna need folk to stay in agriculture. We're gonna need new. Uh, farmers, we're getting older, and uh, we're gonna need some younger guys to come on board to to take the reins and continue on. If if uh, agriculture is gonna be, you know, something sustainable. No question about it, Fred. Thank you for your time. Appreciate this conversation and coming out and uh, visiting with you here on your farm again today. Thank you, Ken. Been speaking with Fred Nickerson on his farm down here in Sweet Home, Arkansas on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That's all for another Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back with more news and views on Arkansas agriculture next Thursday.